right, hope you're having a good morning. Take your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 5. That's where we're going to be, Matthew 5. And um, let me say thank you. I know uh, tons of y'all, hundreds of volunteers served somewhere in the neighborhood of like 10 to 11,000 people Thursday over at the Asheville Mall. So uh, thank you uh, as much as it's it's great to have all those guests here, but that does not happen without you. And so I've got more comments both Thursday night walking around as well as uh, via email and so forth. Just about, it's unbelievable the way you all, whether it be manning rides or filling up candy or sifting rocks in that little gym finder deal. I was like, that's just great job on doing that. And then secondly, uh, we're in this deal called uh, Love Your Neighbor. Love Your Neighbor is basically the... uh, phrase we've used because a guy a long time ago asked Jesus, he said, hey, what's the main thing in the Bible? And he said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then the second commandment is like it. And he said, love your neighbor as yourself. And so the first command, love God, but out of that overflow, then we love other people. And so this, we're about halfway through this and there's some big things like the fall family festival. Probably the next big thing is a bless a child. All right. We've identified a thousand very high needs, low income children, elementary school kids in Macon, Henderson, and Buncombe County. And what we're going to try, what we're going to do on the 24th of November is go that afternoon. We're going to come to church and then go out there and actually act like the church. And we're going to supply them in those three counties uh, with a number of different things. Here's a quick list here. And the reason we can do this for a great cost is because of our good friends at Wally World, Walmart. But uh, everything from a winter coat to sweatshirts to boots, hats, gloves, uh, scooter, helmet, a $50 gift card, all that kind of stuff comes from, uh, from, from your generosity. And so what we're asking you to do is to uh, at least one child for you to bless, all right? You can just text the word bless to 28282 and get all the information uh, about that, all right? So we've got a couple weeks to make sure that that happens. Again, a 1,000 kids, all right? It's not just, act, it's just not saying we're the church. It's actually acting like the church and going out there. So we'll be filling those blanks in pretty soon. So here's kind of where it starts today. We're going to look at one of the most difficult sayings that Jesus ever did. I'm going to personally testify, this is super hard, all right? This is super difficult. There's a lot of misunderstandings to it, but there's also just a lot of resistance to it. It's just the fact that, you know what, I don't want to go there. I don't want to go there. I don't want to open that thing up. I don't want to go there in my soul because I've kind of packaged that away a little bit, and I don't want to deal with it. But if you don't deal with it, it's going to deal with you, as we're going to talk about here in a few minutes. Because this love your neighbor, it was super easy kind of initially when your neighbor is the person right around you. Maybe, you know, the person over here, the person over there, the person that lives next door. And I've heard some great stories. So great job on going from waving your hand to going over there and introducing yourself. Actually, I met some of your neighbors after the first service in the lobby. They're like, Brian asked me to come, and we met last week. And so great job on that. But what you're going to see in the text today is Jesus sort of expands the concentric circle. He takes it not just your neighbors, not just the people you come in contact with where you live, work, and play, but then he expands it into a more, uh, a more difficult area. Actually, what came to mind is the, is the commercial series from Allstate. All right? Allstate has got one of the best commercial series going And it's been going for a long time in different scenarios. And it's basically taking a guy named Mayhem 
And the whole idea is make sure you're covered so that you don't fall victim to mayhem like me. And they've got all these different scenarios about why you need Allstate insurance. Everything from putting your portable fire pit and throwing it into the back of your car, your car blowing up, to, uh, you know, why do you, why do you need this? Somebody's trying to steal stuff from your house, so you need some homeowners to, of course, the obligatory cat that was like tearing up everything in your house, of course. I mean, that was not hard to imagine. But the one, the one that I was like, man, that is me. That is me, is the tailgating one. Here's the basically, if you hadn't seen the commercial, here's what it is. The tailgate, there's the picture. Mayhem is actually in the back car. The first guy is the victim. And basically what's happening is mayhem is behind him right on his bumper, riding his bumper, but the victim can't go anywhere because there's a car right in front of him. And I thought, that is so much like me. And the way the commercial goes is, the commercial is, he's paying attention to the guy behind him so much so, he takes his eye off the road and then he smashes into a car in front of him. And then mayhem just rides by him laughing. I thought, man, that's so convicting. Let me just tell you what, this is church, so I'm going to be full confession, all right? You know what happens with me when somebody tailgates me like that? When somebody rides my bumper, when I don't, if I'm going slow, that's one thing. But if, but if somebody's right in front of me, my reaction is not, oh, bless your heart, okay? It's not, oh, man, Jesus saved that guy. That is not it at all. When you're right on my bumper, when I have somebody right in front of me, my first reaction is, you know, like that. My second reaction, if you stay there, you'll see, you'll see me kind of go, what, what? And I'm hoping, I'm like, where, where do you want me to go? And what happens is if somehow or another you get by me, this is true, you get by me. If you get by me, chances are you're going to get stopped by the traffic that I was going slow for. And let me just tell you, brother, what I'm going to do. I'm going to ride you like a pony. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to ride you so hard because it feels, how does that feel? Why do we do that? Why do we, why do we feel that way? I mean, I get so much satisfaction. I'm like, see, see, how's it feel now? How's it feel now, bro? All right, I mean, I love it. I got these big fog lights that'll go like right into your soul as well. So why do I feel that way? Here's the reason, to be honest, here's the reason. And here's the reason some of you are like, hey, that's me, or that's the way I feel, or you put your own caricature in there. Because the way I feel is, you know what? Uh, I have been a recipient of injustice, and I will not let that stand. <laughs> that's basically it. Pride swells up. You have been unjust to me, and I will not let that stand. Something has gone wrong, and my inflated sense of justice starts to flame up. And that's the way it is. Let me just say this real quickly. Theologically, having a sense of injustice is not wrong. That's actually part of the image of God in which God made you. It's that sense of anger, righteous indignation that wells up when you see the news and you see some child all harmed or some woman abused. And it's like, that something is wrong there that's got to be changed. That's not wrong, okay? But because of the fall and because of our sin, we're like out of whack in our sense of injustice. And a lot of times it just becomes revenge and retribution. And I'll show you, you show me. You acted this way, I'm going to act this other way. Now, we're going to look at a text today, as I said, that is when you initially read it, you're going to like push back on it. But into all of that, Jesus says this. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, pause there for a second. First of all, this is in a section of your Bible called the Sermon on the Mount, all right? Jesus has gotten very popular. He goes up on a hill because there's so many people out there he's going to preach to. And what he does oftentimes, he's speaking to an almost exclusively Jewish audience. Not all, but almost exclusively Jewish audience. And what he's doing is he's taking the Old Testament and he's 
taking those commands and then raising the bar and then also showing how he fulfills all those commands, right? And so the first one is, he says, you have heard it said, and he's talking about you've heard it, you've read it, you've seen these things in the Old Testament, and one of them is you shall love your neighbor, and that is in the Old Testament. But the second phrase, and hate your enemy, just a quick warning, that's not in the Bible anywhere. That's not in the Bible. It's actually became a Jewish idiom because they didn't understand when Jesus said it then it's about how big your neighbor was actually supposed to be. I'll come back to it in a second. Verse 44. But I say to you, this is his way of saying you've heard it one way, let me raise the bar. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, who harass you, who talk about you, who've injured you. I told you it's hard. So that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. So you may look like your, your dad. For he, for God, makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? In other words, he's saying that's just kind of normal. You love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. Like it's like the worst person they could possibly, this is not an exaggeration. That would almost be like, does not ISIS do the same thing? For if, but and if you, and if you greet only, it's a good word, kind of circle this in your Bible. It's a little bigger meaning than just, hey, bro, how you doing? It's a bigger meaning than that. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles, Gentiles is a word for a non-Jew, but in their belief it's the idea of, of not even a believer in any sort of deity or, or tons of different deities, but it's a pagan. Do not even the pagans do the same. You, therefore, must be perfect. Before some of you freak out, like, I can't be perfect. Perfect is the word teleos, which means full or mature or to completion, all right? In other words, this is like... Loving your enemy is like the final line he talks about. It's like, that's like the final, that's your dissertation in your apprenticeship with Jesus is how do you actually treat those who have mistreated you? You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. All right, let me get this out on the table. Some of you, when you even read the phrase, love your enemies, you thought to yourself, some of you didn't, but some of you thought, I don't have any enemies. I'm a pretty nice guy. I really haven't had any altercations with anybody. I don't ride the bumper of anybody, and nobody's really seriously injured me at all. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to do two things. First of all, think about if you were a first century Hebrew. If you were first century Hebrew, because Bible study means you look, when you look at the Bible, what you want to do is say, all right, what did the author mean? And then what did the recipients hear, the original hearers? And then lastly, what does it mean to me? Okay. It's not, okay, what does it mean to me? And then what did it mean to them? It's what did it mean to them as best you can tell. That's part of what, it's really all of what Bible study is. What did the author mean? What did the recipients hear? And then now what do I hear? And so what you've got to do in this case is, all right, what did a first century Hebrew understand when Jesus said, love your enemies? Now the context in that case was you had a, it doesn't really matter where you lived. You could live in Bethsaida, you could live... In Copernicus, you could live anywhere, but you lived in a militarized zone. You lived in a place where Roman legionnaires freely walked the streets, harassing you, harassing your family, sometimes stealing your property. You lived in a, a place that had been invaded 70 years before, 
and they had put you under their thumb. The taxes were sky high, 80 to 90% in some cases. Food at times could be a bit scarce. Your, your grandparents, your parents, you've seen some of them actually get their possessions taken from them. And people, Jewish people were reacting in a couple of different, widely different ways. One group were called the Zealots. The Zealots were those who violently went back and pushed back against the Romans. Zealots were known as people, they would make these guerrilla attacks. They would go in where some region, Roman legionnaires were, and they'd take a shank, and they'd like shank them, all right? They just would shank them and then run. So what would Rome do? Rome would backlash against them, and they'd kill a bunch of Jewish men. One case is they crucified all these Jewish men as a retaliation and as a deterrent to what the Zealots were doing. On the other extreme, you had a bunch of people that just kind of embraced victimhood. They just realized, you know what, uh, we must, it must be God's will that we are suffering, and so we'll just kind of lay down and be a doormat. And what you see in Jesus' teaching is neither hyper-aggressiveness nor passivity. And so there's so many questions that come to mind. There's so many things that people have said. It's like, well, you know, we're supposed to be pacifists, and I'm a, I'm a policeman or a policewoman. What am I supposed to do? Or what about this person that harmed me? Should they go to jail or not? I'm going to try to answer some of those and just giving you a few key words as we work through the text, right? Here's the first one. When you talk about love your neighbor, loving your enemy is proactive. Listen to me. Loving your enemy, when he says, you've heard it said, you've heard it said, love your enemy, love your neighbor, but hate your enemy. You're like, how did they get, how did they get hate your enemy? Listen to the verse he gets it from. Leviticus 19, 18 says this, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people. That's a super key phrase. But you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So here's what happened. That little phrase, sons of your people, they took that phrase to say what God was saying was your neighbor only are Jewish people. They're the sons of your people. Literally, we are supposed to love our neighbor, and our neighbor are only Jewish people, the people that look like us, act like us, similar socioeconomic, same skin color. That's who we're supposed to love because that is our neighbor. Anybody else, it's free game. They, we can hate them. And so what happened is a Jewish idiom started to matriculate over the decades, and this is what it kind of became the saying. You love your enemy, you love your fellow Jew, but you can hate other people. So once again, who is your enemy? Who is your enemy? Some of you are like, I don't have an enemy. Here's the definition of an enemy. It's a really broad word in the Greek, can kind of mean anything. But in our vernacular, here's the definition of your enemy. One who shows dislike towards you. One who shows antagonism. One who rejoices in the failure of another. So what does that look like? Let me give you some examples. This could be your ex who rejoices in making your life miserable. This could be that nasty neighbor who brings down your home values, makes living in your home a nightmare. It could be that mom who constantly yelled at you, put you down, brought you back down, always putting you down so that you had zero confidence. It could be your dad who seemed completely oblivious to you, climbing the corporate ladder while lowering his handicap, and it's like, dude, you missed everything. I don't want to be anything like you at all. It could be the friend who betrayed you, sold you out, ruined your reputation. 
It could be the spouse who cheated on you, the coworker who manipulated the records or stole your ideas so that he or she could look good. It could be the relative who abused you. I understand in this room there is a countless amount of things from the superficial to the amazingly egregious and wicked. So when you look at a text like this, a lot of the problem is we just don't understand both hate or love. Because today when he says you can hate your enemy, we tend to think if you disagree with me, you hate me. That's not the word at all. All right, If I disagree with you, I will tell you, God, God and I disagree a lot. All right, He's right, I'm wrong, I'm supposed to change. Doesn't mean that he hates me because he disagrees with me. I don't hate you if I disagree with you. I just disagree with you. But a bigger issue is the word love. Because love is such a, it has such a semantic range in our society. Western culture definition is love is a feeling of intense affection. And so we use, we have one word for love. That language had at least four, maybe five. We have one word. So if I'm trying to describe love, I've got a one word. I can say I love, I love Lori, I love cookies, I love God, and I love social media. Those all mean entirely different things, but I've got one word to express it, and that is love. The word he uses here is specifically about a love that is not based on your feelings, it is based on your choice. It's not based on your emotion, it's based on your will. It is a choice of your will to want the best for another person. It's a choice of your will, it's a choice that you make to will another person's good before your own. And so when you think about it this way, you gotta think loving your enemy is, is, it is proactive. It is proactive. So here's a couple things about proactivity, not passive. In the Bible, when you look at the four Gospels, there's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are what are called synoptic Gospels, meaning that there's a lot of overlap of stories, all right, told from three different perspectives by the person of the Holy Spirit, but you see different things. There's a lot of what are called parallel passages, meaning, all right, this situation happened here, it also happened over here, and it's good to read both. Now, don't turn there, but the parallel passage of this section in Luke's Gospel is Luke chapter 6. And in Luke 6, he expands upon a lot of the actions that you and I are supposed to take that Matthew does not expand upon. To give you a couple of things, there's tons of places that loving your enemy is not winking at their behavior. It is not tolerating injustice. As a matter of fact, often the most loving thing you can actually do for another person is to call out their behavior as evil, even put a stop to it. The Bible says, speak the truth in love. So again, loving your enemy doesn't mean to ignore the destruction. It doesn't mean to sweep it under the rug and acting like there's no damage being done. If you look at Jesus, he oftentimes intervened to protect other people. He would protect other people, which by the way, he rarely did anything to protect himself. But almost all the time when it was other people, he would immediately step in there. And so let me take a quick little rabbit chase here. I get so tired of the caricatures of Jesus that only are one aspect of who he is. Typically, the aspect that gets exaggerated, not exaggerated, that gets put in there without understanding that there are other aspects of him. And again, I want you to listen carefully. Is Jesus compassionate? Absolutely. Thank God for that. Is he kind? Absolutely. 
Do you see him showing tremendous mercy to those that are in their sin and in their shame? Phenomenally. But your Christology is not just in one little section of Scripture. In other words, if you take your whole Christology out of Matthew 9 that says, he looked out and they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. And you talk about, man, that's who Jesus was. He was, that was all he was. And that's what people have kind of done through the years. They have kind of put upon us this single snapshot that ends up being a caricature. And typically what it goes, and I just, again, this is a, this is a, uh, just a bent with me, is that down with, down with the soft, weak, passive, hollow forehead, soft palmed, blue eyed, blonde haired with perfectly coiffed hair, Jesus. That's not, Jesus was anything but weak, folks. Jesus was anything but passive. I mean, I could give you example after example. Jesus makes a whip out of cords to drive a bunch of charlatans out of, the God's, out of God's house. Nobody tries to intervene. Nobody does. Jesus stands up for an adulteress, stops a crowd that wanted to stone her. Jesus walks on the water to his disciples, speaks a word, the whole storm calms down. He talks to a bunch of denominational leaders, which typically preachers are so reluctant to ever criticize. And he talks to a bunch of denominational leaders. And he's like, you guys are a bunch of vipers. You're a bunch of snakes. You're going to hell and you're murderers. That's who you are. If you don't like that, even in that last book of the Bible, in the book of Revelation, we learn that he will be riding a white stallion, wearing a robe dipped in blood, wielding a sword with fire coming out of his eyes. That is not the super easy, soft little baby Jesus that you feel like you could beat up in high school. That is not it at all. That is not it at all. And so when we talk about being proactive, understand this is not about passivity. Secondly, this is another thing, it's personal. Personal. The reason this is important to understand is when you look at the context of the Sermon on the Mount, this is not about national security. This is not about law enforcement. This is about, this is about a personal son or daughter of Almighty God who is an apprentice of Jesus. They're a son or daughter of Almighty God in their personal, in their personal dealings and relationships with people. When you look at the text right here, you not only see it as personal, it's the idea of Romans 13, 4. If you're like, what's the role? What's the role outside of personal? If you want to kind of know the role of government, law enforcement, and military, Romans 13, 4 is the classic passage. It says, for he, that means God's authority, that means these areas of authority that God has put in place, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. Listen to this last part, for he... The authority, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. So when we talk about personal, man, I thank God if you're a police person, man. Thanks for doing your job, all right? We sleep better at night. Thank you for doing that. If you're in the military, we sleep safely at night. So that does not have to do with this. It does not have to be passive in that regard. It's personal. You as a disciple in your interpersonal relationships, how do I view my enemy? And this last one would be this. It is, uh, the text is saying it's proof. You're like, where's the proof? Look down to verse 45, 46, and 47. It says, you treat people like this, and it says, you will be sons of your Father in heaven who brings the sun up, and he sends the rain in an agrarian culture. He's saying, you know what? You're doing this because that's what God is like. God sent rain, God sent sun on the righteous and the unrighteous. He helped them grow their corn just like he helped the unrighteous grow their corn. All right, He helped them grow their wheat just like he's helping the unrighteous grow their wheat. So God was that way toward people. And so he's like, you want to look like that. 
Now listen to me. We ought to know this better. We ought to know this better than some Jew 2,000 years ago. We should know this better because the gospel, by definition, is that God loved his enemies. By definition, the gospel is you and I were at enmity with God, and God chose to love us, set his love upon you, and then died for you. So we ought to know this better than some Jew 2,000 years ago. You might be saying, whoa, Scooter, I don't know if you actually should say that I was an enemy with God. I'm not saying it. I'm just saying the Bible says it. Jot down some of these verses, and this is one of about 10 we could look at. Ephesians 2 says, we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. I don't know, children of wrath doesn't sound great, does it? Children of wrath means we deserved God's justice. And what the Bible says and what the gospel is is that Jesus took the justice of God and the punishment of God on himself so that you and I do not have to. You look at uh, Romans chapter 5, God shows his love toward us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Colossians chapter 1, and you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, you were reconciled by his death so that you could stand before him holy, righteous, and blameless. So here's what the idea is. The idea that you see throughout the Bible is you cannot be a person who hates people and say you love God. You cannot do that. You cannot do that. The whole book of 1 John says that you cannot, it's ignorant to say, all right, I love God, but I hate my brother. I love God, but I hate the church, okay? Here's the idea. The church has a ton of flaws. It has a ton of flaws beginning with me. But if you say, you know what, I love God and I love Jesus, but I just don't like his bride, that is a, either an arrogant or an ignorant statement, okay? It's either arrogant because you're thinking you're the only one who is not hypocritical, Okay? Either that's either number one, or you're just ignorant and you don't understand the fact that the Bible says you cannot, you cannot say I love God and then I hate my brother. You can't do it. First John says this, if you say that, he says the truth of God is not even in you. It would be just like the same thing if you're like, uh, Bruce, we like you, we just don't like Lori. I'm like, well, bro, you get, we're a package deal, we're a package deal. So you're like, well, what am I supposed to do with the people that actually have hurt me? I got some stuff that I want to tell them. I got some stuff that I want to show them. They got to pay for what they do, and they will, just so you know. You're like, but how, how do I do that? Well, I love the fact that Jesus is not like abstract philosophy teacher, like in seminary. They're like, this is a great idea, and they go back and get some incense and feel good about this lesson that will never apply. He actually says, here's the way it looks. And so Luke has a little bit more detail, but Matthew's got plenty for us today, and just two of them. It's right there. Again, this is just basically walking through the Bible and, and seeing what are we supposed to do. And so here's what he says. He says, but I say to you, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. So point number one would be pray for your enemies. You're like, the heck I am. The heck I am. Or you're like, yeah, I'll pray for them. I'll pray their plane goes down on the way to Boston. That's what I'll pray for. I'll pray that they have like the horrible first date that they're out on a date after they left our family and like their nose grows a foot and they look terrible at their friend. Yeah, I'll pray for that prayer. That's not what he's talking about, just so you know. Now some of you are laughing. You never, you never thought that prayer before? Come on, don't leave me hanging up here. You never thought that prayer before. You never thought it before? Because remember what is the Bible? The Bible says he knows your thoughts. So whether you ever voiced it or not, God's like, eh, see that? See that right there? All right, fine. You all hadn't ever done that. So I have, just so you know. Um, here's the problem. The problem is if you don't know how to deal with your enemies, 
what they did to you will continue to deal with you. God, this is, you got to get this. Because some of you, some, some of you, the replay of what went on, and I understand that you're like, you don't know what happened to me, and I don't. God knows. God knows what would happen to you, actually, when he put these words down. All right, God's not up on some ivory tower. Jesus died on a tree for you. So he understands what it's like to be betrayed. He understands what it's like to be murdered. He understands what it's like to his friends to ruin his reputation. He understands all of that. What's Jesus doing for you now? The Bible says he actually is interceding on your behalf. If you don't know how to deal with your injury, it will deal with you. Here's what I mean by that. For some of you, see, if you don't deal with it, one of two things is going to happen. First thing is you're going to just review it all the time. You're going to review it in your mind all the time. She did this and she said that and then it just leads to everything. Well, I, I might forgive her if she comes and apologizes. Now, listen, I'm not saying that the person doesn't have consequences. I'll come to that. But if you don't know how to deal with it, what's going to happen is this. Injury, we've done this formula a hundred times. Injury without forgiveness plus time equals a bitterness. Bitterness in the Bible is the word for pointed. Pointed is the idea. Don't touch that. Don't touch that. Ooh, that hurts. And what happens is you and I replay what happened over and over and over in our mind. Now, we do this with movies that we like, for example. Like this Christmas, here's what some of y'all are gonna do. Some of y'all are gonna get Elf, and you're gonna play that, and you're like, why would you play that? You've seen that for 10 times. You've seen that over and over and over again. You've seen the little snowball scene in Central Park where Will Ferrell's like chunking the thing. You know, you're like, you've seen that, but you replay it over and over and over again. Why? I replay I Am Legend. Anytime I Am Legend is on, my kids are like, Dad, it's like the ninth time you've seen it. I'm like, yeah, but there's a cooler German shepherd and there's all this awesome stuff and justice and all this. Now, what we like to do with our favorite movies, we also do with our least favorite memories. What somebody did to you, you just push, depending on your generation, you might push a, a DVR, you might push a VHS, or you overhead projector or whatever it is you push and like, I'm going to remember this and I'm going to play it back. It might be you're in the shower, which is out of the blue. I hate that person for what they did to me. And if you don't deal with that, it is going to deal with you. Now we've taught on forgiveness 10 times. We probably teach on forgiveness at least once a year. But in case you weren't here, let me just give you a couple of things about that because there is nothing so bitter as being bitter. There's just nothing so bitter as being bitter. There's nothing so damaging to your family and your relationships now as being bitter. Matter of fact, they did this, uh, University of Michigan did a study. They, tested a, they did a study of a group of ladies who were tested to determine which were harboring long-term bitterness. Again, bitterness is I get injured, I get hurt, I hold on to it. So time plus unforgiveness eventually equals bitterness. You're like, yeah, time heals all wounds. Time heals nothing. Time doesn't heal it. Time doesn't heal it. If time healed it, then it wouldn't have come up right now. And you're like, don't talk to me about that person. Okay, so they did this study at the University of Michigan about long-term bitterness. Then the women were tracked for 18 years. 18, that's the longest study I've ever heard of. The outcome was that women with suppressed anger and bitterness were three times more likely to have died during the study, during those 18 years, than those that didn't have that kind of bitter hostility towards somebody else. 
And let me just tell you again, even if you survive physically, it absolutely wrecks your relationships now. Let me be blunt. Some of you right now, you've got this, and you've never dealt with the hurt that your ex did, and the hurt that your ex did, the betrayal that your ex did, you've never dealt with it, so it actually affects either your relationship with your kids or your relationship with your current spouse. And you're like, your spouse, like, where did that come from? Where did that come from? And you don't even know where it comes from sometimes. It comes from an unresolved, you haven't dealt with a legit, I'm not saying they didn't hurt you, you just have not dealt with it at all. By the way, psychologists call that transference. Transference, I mean, I think the devil calls it uh, effective. I think that's what he calls it. Because what he can do is if he can get that in there and all you're doing is, here's the idea, you can't help to get wounded. Now again, I understand I grew up predominantly in Mayberry, so I don't have the hurts that some of you have, all right? But everybody in this room, you're going to get injured. You cannot help that. You don't get to audit that class. But what you deal, if you deal with it biblically, if you give that to the Lord, God's will for you is not for somebody, some voice, some memory to have authority over you this morning. God wants you to have freedom. God wants you to walk out this door in a little while and say, you know what? I release that person to God. You're like, why would I do that? Why would I do that? Why would you release somebody? Do you actually believe that God is a God of justice? That's the big question you got to ask. Do I believe God is a God of justice? Listen to Romans chapter 12. It says, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. That includes Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all that kind of stuff. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. Now here, verse 19, some of you are like, well, you shouldn't think of that that way. If you're thinking, well, I shouldn't think about that this way, and I shouldn't think that God is going to sometime get even, then you probably haven't been hurt that deeply. You get hurt real deeply. When I say real deeply, I understand the, you know, the whole idea today. I'm talking about abuse. I'm talking about betrayal. I'm talking about deep wickedness. If you don't believe God is a God of justice, you will never be able to forgive. Because here's what verse 19 says, Beloved, he says, Never avenge yourself, but leave room. Listen, leave room, leave, leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay. Don't get between the nail and the hammer. Somebody has done something with injustice or wickedness, Listen, I'm not saying that they don't need to go to jail. I'm not saying you don't call the police. You do. That's part of God's authority structure. I'm not saying somebody doesn't need to pay for those. There are consequences. All I'm saying is when you take it into your hands and your retaliation, and I hate that person, you're actually giving them the easy way out. I mean, who would you want to deal with? You want to deal with you or you want to deal with God? Do you really believe God is the ultimate avenger for you? I'll just give you a couple of thoughts because some of you are like, I'm not sure. Let me give you the big picture and then the small picture. The big picture is you don't have to avenge yourself because you can rest assured that justice will be done. Listen to me. The one that wrongs you, either Christ will pay the full penalty for their sin like he has yours, or they will suffer in hell, but justice will be served. And that is huge in developing the ability to forgive somebody else. You know what? Justice is going to be served. God misses nothing at all. Again, the gospel is not God ignored our sin. The gospel is God paid for our sin. Or even in the smaller picture, 
When you take the retaliation in your own hands, and believe me, loved ones, I am preaching to myself. Now, some of us do it in a more aggressive way than others, and some of us are more passive. Some of us are aggressive. Some of us are passive-aggressive. You know which one you are, okay? The idea is you take that into your hands. How effective is that typically? Oh, there's something in us that feels good about that. I was reflecting this week on the last physical altercation I ever had. It's like, man, it felt good to punch that guy, and he was like a great above me, so it's awesome that I won the fight, and like, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. And what happened? Well, number one, I got saved, all right? Got saved a year or so later. That's the good news. But what was that? Was that helpful? No. It was not helpful. It made me feel good for a small amount of time. So here's the idea. When we lash out of a person, and again, you can do that a lot of different ways. In marriage, what you do is you withhold encouragement. You withhold communication. You withhold intimacy. Like, I don't like you, and you talk bad to me, so I'm going to make you pay for it. And how's that working for you? Does that usually work well? Does your spouse usually come up and go, man, I just, I just so feel so cherished by you. And that's just, that's amazing. No. What it does? Well, if you're treating me that way, I'll treat you this way. If you're treating me this way, then I'm going to treat you back. Nowhere good. So you're like, what am I supposed to do? What am I supposed to do? How do you pray for somebody like that? Let me give you just a couple ideas. Because you're really praying for their heart and you're praying for your own heart. You're praying for your own heart and you're like, God, I release this person to you. They don't owe me, they don't owe me an apology. First of all, when you're like, they're going to pay me back. Loved ones, 99% of the time, especially on the grievous sin that somebody did against you, how are they ever going to pay you back? How can they pay back your innocence? How are they going to put the reputation you had? It's like putting ketchup back in a bottle. How are you going to do They can't do that. Well, I'm just waiting for them to say that they're sorry. Two things on that. Number one, 99% of the time, they're not coming. They're not coming. They're not coming to say they're sorry. As a matter of fact, they're not sorry. Every now and then you get it, but if you've not released them for the Lord and say, God, they don't owe me, they don't owe me that, they don't owe me that, I release them, then when they finally do come and say that, you're not prepared for it anyway. You're like, dang right, dang right, you owe me more than an apology. Man, today, can you imagine the freedom of just leaving that here at church, leaving all that baggage, leaving all those, you talk about some baggage fees, man. It's like, they charge me 50 bucks. They charge me, that's a lot more expensive, that baggage fee. So just leave it here. Jesus, I just want to leave this to you. You pay them back as you wish, but I'm going to show kindness. I'm going to show grace because you've been gracious to me. Pray they get converted. Say, God, if they don't know Christ, I pray that that would happen. If they're doing some wicked stuff still, then pray that evil would be restrained. God, would you send your authority structure to take that away? God, would you restrain the evil? There's nothing wrong with praying that. It's fine. There's nothing even wrong with really praying, God, in your perfect timing, would you bring vengeance in your perfect timing? Let me give you this last one. This last one will be kind of hard, too. Believe me. Believe me. This is hard. I will just tell you right now, I'm halfway through this process, just so you know. I'm not fully through there. I got through the praying part. Full confession. All right, full confession is I have, uh, unfortunately, I have a, I, I have a long-term memory. I still, I, I can't remember, I can't remember what I preached last Sunday, but I can remember an email from 15 years ago. I can't remember, I can't remember what color carpet we have in the basement. I think we, I'm not even sure we have carpet, but I think, I can't remember what it is, okay? But I can remember what somebody blogged about me seven years ago. 
What is that? All I'm saying is, I understand the difficulty in this. Praying is the start. Here's what I found out. When you pray, this one is at least possible. And I'm just, I didn't know how to phrase it. I said, express kindness toward them. You're like, where are you getting that from the text? In the text, it says, if you only greet people like a bunch of unbelievers greet them, what good is that? What difference is that as a son or daughter, an apprentice of Jesus? What difference is that? The word greet there doesn't just mean, hey, bro, or, you know, a little tap on the shoulder on social media. That's not what it means. It means to welcome or to express kindness toward. Luke sort of kind of bridges this out a little bit and says this. It says things like, bless those who curse you. Man, that's hard to do, right? Social media, somebody blesses you, somebody curses you. Well, bless your heart. It's not bless your heart. It's not like Southern gospel, okay? This is like gospel gospel. It's not bless your heart, which means, you know, basic, bless your heart. In the North, they say go to hell. In the South, we say, we say bless your heart. Same meaning, just different way to say it. <laughs> Truth, that's true. Bless your heart. Um, I don't mean bless your heart. I just, anyway, um, <laughs> a social just crossing the barriers, uh, material. You're like, why would I do that? Why would I show kindness towards some jack that has hurt my life? Even if it wasn't that deep, why would I do that? Well, I'll give you one last thing. There's two reasons. Obviously, that's the way God treated us in the gospel. That's the primary way. But because he's so gracious, he actually gives you one more little deal. Just look it up sometime in, in Luke. You can actually look across the page in the, like Matthew 5, 11, and 12. He says virtually the same thing. I'm not sure. Maybe Luke was like taken earlier in the sermon. On, we don't, I don't know. But here's what he says. He says, you treat your enemies right. And then he has a phrase and he says, and great is your reward in heaven. Now listen, last week, I kind of opened that up a little bit. And we don't have time today to talk about rewards in heaven. Summary last week, I was like, the, what, what you believe determines where you spend eternity. Okay, you believe, you repent in Jesus, that ends up, that's where you spend eternity. Okay, but even, even how you behave, how you behave d- determines how you spend eternity, okay? All right? How you behave, what that means is, again, heaven is not some eternal church service where you hear 50,000 songs in a row. That's not it. I mean, heaven is awesome. And what he's trying to say is this. Your life right now is short. you got 50, 60, 70, 80, 90 years max, okay? If you're 95, I'm sorry, but for most of us, we ain't getting to 95. So bottom line is we got a certain amount of time, and there will be wounds. He said, but if you learn how to biblically treat your enemies, he goes, that isn't a, that's going to pay like dividends for a lot longer time, so think that way. Real quickly, story. Remember a few years ago when Steve Harvey made that amazing, colossal blunder at the Miss Universe pageant? You all remember that? If you didn't, I mean, look it up. It's almost, it's like a car wreck. You cannot look away. It's like, did that really happen? Did that really just happen? Quick synopsis, Miss Universe pageant was going on. They did all this kind of stuff, three-hour show or whatever. You come to the crescendo. Steve Harvey's the MC. He comes out. It's like, he's got the, he's got the, he's got the, uh, the note between the, who's the runner-up and who is Miss Universe. I mean, this is like the pinnacle, everything they've been working for. All this stuff is happening. He takes out the envelope and he's like, Miss Universe is. Ms. Columbia. And when he says that, everybody's just like, yeah, it's awesome. She breaks down in tears. Oh, you know, and Miss Philippines over there is like, well, it's not really that good, but I got to be happy. I'm on national TV. So she's kind of clapping like this, all this stuff. And then amazingly, like a minute later, Steve Harvey realizes, I've made a mistake. I don't know how you make a mistake. Columbia and Philippines doesn't look like that much, but he's like, oh, I'm sorry. Miss Columbia is actually the first runner up. 
Miss Philippines is the new Miss Universe. And it's like, woo, that's awesome. So here's the point. The point is for like 60 seconds, for like 60 seconds, man, Miss Columbia was on top of the world. This is awesome. Pinnacle of my life. This is amazing. I've made it. But bottom line, which one would you rather be? You want to be the one that gets like 60 seconds of applause and attaboy, that's awesome, because Miss Philippines, she got to keep the crown for a long time. She's over there, 60 seconds of, oh, that hurt. But a lifetime of being able to say, you know what, that's awesome. And what we're saying is this. God is saying, for the glory of God, for the good of others, and the good of you, this is how I treated you. So the way I treated you, I want you to treat others. Here's the way I try to sum it up. Here's a prayer I want you to pray. All right, so here's the prayer. This, we'll put it on social later on, so don't write it down. I want you to listen, okay? All right, we're going to put it out, so don't write it down. Some, some of you are still writing. Oh, man, bless your heart, okay? So here's the, here's, the, here's the deal. Dear God, dear God, thank you, thank you that when I was your enemy, you loved me. That's where it's got to start. Thank you that when I was your enemy, when I was a child of wrath, you loved me. You proved you proved that at the cross. And here's the, here's the prayer. Empower me, because you can't do this, all right? You cannot do this just by your willpower. You gotta say, dear God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, being saturated in the gospel, I can do this, all right? Empower me to be to others the way that you've been to me. Empower me. You do this on your own, you don't even make it out of the church parking lot before you're getting angry. Empower me to be to others the way that you've been to me. For the glory of God and the good of others, in Jesus' name, Amen.